The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, his work ethic and output are the stuff of literary legend. Starting his day at 1 a.m., writing thousands of words with a quill, 15 hours or more at a stretch, fueled by pot after pot of black coffee. All this to crank out dozens of novels and countless short stories and novellas over a 20-year span. He was also a champion reviser, adding to his novels digressions, explanations, descriptions, in service of his goal to write a human comedy. Not Dante's divine comedy, but a realistic depiction of the entirety of the French society of his day. The people, the institutions, the personal relationships, the way of life. He was sensational and successful, and when he died, Victor Hugo gave the eulogy on behalf, he said, of a nation in mourning for a man of genius. What a man he would have been, Flaubert once said, had he only known how to write. He meant it as a compliment of sorts, and clearly Honoré de Balzac did know how to write, and readers have known how to read his works, sometimes a little impatiently, sometimes with an anachronistic grain of salt, but most often for his characters, his insight into the human condition, and his unflinching ability to care, to care about all people, sinners and saints alike, and to make us care too. The world is a fascinating place. Honoré de Balzac found it to be so, and he set about to make it more so, and we are all the beneficiaries of his efforts, both through his works and through his legacy. He influenced many, including contemporary author Carlos Allende, author of Coffee, Shopping, Murder, Love, four things which would have made Balzac smile and nod in appreciation. Balzac might have picked up this novel to find the misadventures of two gay men embarked upon a relentlessly unsentimental caper involving death, money laundering, a gay cruise, and an ass-backward trip to Mexico. I'd like to think Balzac would have enjoyed the frankness that a contemporary novelist can employ, and that he would appreciate Agende's empathy, verve, and wicked sense of humor. I know the admiration would be mutual, as Agende has been an admirer of Balzac's for many years. We talk about that admiration, as well as his new novel, with Carlos Agende, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, eager, eager, eager to welcome our guest today. It is Pride Month. Everything is going to hell everywhere all the time. That's the news headline anyway. Maybe that should be the name of my next novel. Everything going to hell everywhere all the time. Except here at the History of Literature podcast, we are the oasis, aren't we? The lonely island just waiting for all you shipwrecked people. Welcome. We have plenty of room and coconut water and Wi-Fi. Now, you might be wondering how I can promise this. Well, Honoré de Balzac helps. That wasn't his birth name, by the way, nor his family name. They were Balsas, which was not too impressive. So Balzac's father, who was himself 
quite a striver. He was a southern peasant who left home with a single coin in his pocket and made his fortune in Paris and wound up a fairly high-ranking civil servant just before Napoleon upended everything. I think he did work for Napoleon for a few years. That man, Balzac's father, changed the name from Balsa to Balzac. Balzac himself grew up in privilege thanks to his father's moxie and acumen. Feel free to use that as your band name if anyone out there is still putting together a band. Name your pets that. How about that? Moxie and Acumen. <laughs> Here, Moxie. Here, Acumen. Or just call them Calvin and Hobbes. It's basically the same thing, isn't it? Calvin is Moxie and Hobbes. Well, okay, moving on. Balzac's father kept the family in the finest schools, which helped young Balzac, although he was not a great student. Yet another genius who had trouble with rote memorization and the methods of education of the day. We've seen that before, haven't we? Geniuses got a genius, people. They're stifled by those dull drills and lifeless lessons. I'm still on their, the family name. The father changed from Balsa to Balzac, and Balzac himself added the D to make his name seem more august and pedigreed. Balzac's mother was more or less sold off to his father. He was over 50 and she was 18. It was a marriage good for her family, a prosperous family of Parisian cloth merchants who wanted to get in good with the government via Balzac's father. The plan for Honoré was to become a lawyer and he went down that path to please his father, but he was already writing mostly plays at first, none of them too successful, then novels filled with mysticism and philosophy, which were also not very successful, then straight-out potboilers, which he wrote pseudonymously out of a vague sense of shame. He gave up the law, displeasing his father, but who agreed to let him stay in Paris on a small allowance, which was not enough to keep Honoré de Balzac out of debt. His debts continued to rise practically for the rest of his life. He was a bad businessman who tried to make a go of printing and publishing and so on. And in the end, he started writing at a crazy pace as he attempted to scramble out of debt. Not that I would know how that feels. Two episodes a week and still going nowhere fast. Patreon.com slash literature. If you're interested in throwing a few coins into my grinding abyss. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, not really, but let's stick to Paris in the 1820s and 30s and 40s. Balzac finally found himself writing works he was proud of, writing with confidence now, writing works that he could put his name to, and he made a name for himself with the short stories and novels and essays he wrote in this early period, right around 1829 and 1830. And he began to frequent the Parisian salons, those famous Parisian salons, where he came across as very chatty, jovial, easily excited, full of vitality and panache and elan. He was writing detailed looks at society in all facets, the law, the military, the government, as well as the parties and the people. He had several love affairs with upper-crust women aristocrats, women of fashion, and love came flooding into his novels, along with all those novelistic additives, envy and hatred and lust and longing and marriage and money. 
and betrayals and affairs. And then two more great events in his life. One was that he decided that his destiny was to write a series of novels that taken together would depict all of society. The Comédie Humaine, he called it. He ran into his sister's apartment and said, I am about to become a genius. Well, lots of people say that when they think up a project and then they don't follow through. It's a lot of work to write many novels. It's easy to get bored or to give it all up in order to try to earn one's keep in some less stressful, demanding way. For Balzac, this was almost always a disaster when he tried to earn one's keep in some other way. He had a scheme for extracting and reprocessing slag from mines in Sardinia. Hey, I'm no mine expert, but if I were, I'd probably... Invest in gold or silver or diamond mines, not slag mines. <laughs> or not in the slag that comes out of mines, but what do I know? Maybe Balzac was just more constitutionally capable of seeing the value in slag. My empathy skills are not as high as his. Another scheme he had was to buy 20,000 acres of forest in Ukraine and chop down the trees and sell the wood, transport the wood to France where it would be sold. None of this worked out. The only thing that made him money was his writing, but he used up much of the profits by continuously revising and adding to the proofs, even as they were very close to publication, increasing the printing costs. But he was on his way to being a genius, wealthy in reputation and legacy, if not in actual lucre. And he did do that. He did become a genius. He did fulfill that promise he made when he announced it to his sister. Even today, he's often considered one of the greatest writers in the history of France. It's hard to find a list where he's not in the top five, at least. And this is because he did follow through on that statement. His genius statement, the series of novels, he didn't finish his panoramic view of France, but Considering he only lived to be 51, he came damn close. And the second big event of his life helped here with his ambition, his drive. After he'd written one of his novels, an early novel, he received a curious note. Came from Odessa with no return address. It was signed simply The Foreigner. And it expressed sadness at the cynicism and atheism in Balzac's works, and also the treatment of women, which was negative early on. Balzac somehow fell in love with the writer of this letter. But how to find her? The foreigner. But he put a classified advertisement in the newspaper trying to find this woman. And eventually he did, and the two started a correspondence, and she turned out to be a Polish countess who, like Balzac's mother, had been married off to a man much older than her. Balzac fell in love through their letters, and he mounted a two-pronged attack or approach. One, he wanted to court her, and two, he had to get rid of his debts in order to make a relationship between the two of them viable. So he wrote and wrote and doubled down on his writing and tripled down and so on, cranking out novel after novel after novel. Finally, the countess's husband died, freeing the two of them to pursue one another. There were some major obstacles, including some interference by Franz Liszt, who was also a potential suitor, 
and objections from Tsar Nicholas I, of all people. And there were other obstacles, too. Balzac's own health problems and financial difficulties. Here's the timeline. Balzac met up with her in St. Petersburg in 1843. The two declared their love for one another. And then finally, the setbacks finally cleared. In 1850, they got married. It was Balzac's first marriage. He was truly happy. This was the culmination of years of love and longing and hard work, riding his way into a position to make this possible. And then he died five months later. And so he lives on in our hearts and on the pages of his works. Dickens was influenced by him. A critic once wrote astutely that Dickens is the English Balzac and Balzac is the French Dickens. Flaubert is said to have finished what Balzac started. Essentially, this is a description of realism, which Balzac aimed toward, and Flaubert refined and perfected. Maybe Balzac could see the value in slag. Flaubert knew how to extract the diamonds. Proust was another huge fan of Balzac's. Maybe only Proust has a comparable body of work in French when one considers quantity as well as quality. Henry James was another huge admirer of Balzac's. He, he couldn't believe that more people didn't read and value Balzac. It was a great source of kind of mysterious pain for Henry James. The man rode a beast with a hundred claws, he said, and as big as he is, his works hang perfectly together. The only thing that James wanted less of in Balzac was historical sweep. The artist, he said, is sometimes smothered by the historian. For James, it was the psychology of the characters put into action and interaction with one another that gave Balzac's works their power. I think our guest today, Carlos Agende, would agree. He's going to tell us about his love for Balzac, and in particular, his admiration for the book Cousin Pons, and how Balzac helped him to shape his own fiction, including his new novel, Coffee, Shopping, Murder, Love. Carlos Agende, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Okay, joining me now is Carlos Allende, a media psychology scholar and writer of fiction. He's here today to talk about his third novel, Coffee Shopping Murder Love, along with a French writer from the post-Napoleonic era, Honoré de Balzac. So, Carlos, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So let's go straight to Balzac, and we'll save your writing and your novel for the end. Where were you in life when you discovered Balzac? I must have been 19 or 20. I had just started college, and I was working for these professors. I was a research assistant, and they had a huge library, a huge, huge library, and they had a whole collection of uh, the human comedy. And uh, I just picked up one of their books. I think the first one I read was uh, The Ball of Skull. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to say it in English. And it was just lovely. Then I kept reading and reading Balzac, and I uh, haven't read the whole human comedy, but I must have read at least half of it. Mm, right. And where were you going to college? I was living in La Paz, in Baja California, which is, uh, well, back then, I still is very isolated, but back then was very isolated. <laughs> I was born in... I was born in Mexico City, which, as you know, is a huge city, uh, but I was living in the suburbs. But when I was 10, we moved to La Paz, and that's where I was living. And it was kind of a cultural shock to me. So I was going to the uh, University of Baja California Sur. It, it was a tiny college back then. Still is, I think, maybe not as small. We were like less than 2,000 students. Mm. And were these professors uh, literature professors, or were you working for them? Were they in another discipline? Oh, no. Uh, one was from the Department of Economics, and the other one was from political science. And I was studying economics. I was too coward to study literature. I thought, okay, I need to make money. And uh, it was a, a mistake back then, because I think you should study whatever your heart tells you to study and uh if you love what you do, if that's your passion, you're going to find a way to make money. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, having at least a bit of training in economics, would I could see, would be very helpful for a writer or uh, certainly someone like a Balzac was trying to write about all of society and probably was, was glad to have a lot of uh, different kinds of jobs and experiences under his belt when he set out to write the human comedy. Yes, actually, that's true. I think he worked as a banker mm -hmm. at one point for starting to write. So, yeah, it gives you good training. I mean, and uh, it gave me a, a day job. <laughs> yeah, right. So were you a big reader uh, before? Was that part of your childhood? Was reading great books and Balzac fit right into that? Or was this kind of a revelation for you? Uh, it was kind of a revelation, but I was an avid reader. I was just talking about that. So growing up in Mexico City, I didn't have a lot of children books. Uh, I guess my mom didn't buy many for us, but she bought a lot of uh, comic books. There was one uh, magazine that she bought, almost like a graphic novel for adults. I don't know what to call it, comic book, called uh, Lagrimas, Risas y Amor, which in English would be uh, Tears, Laughter, and Love. And many of those stories were adapted into soap operas, and they were very, very extremely popular in Mexico and mm. all over the, the, uh, the world. But also she read a lot of uh, books by... Victoria Holt, who also wrote as Jean Plady and uh, Philippa Carr, and uh, they're all set in um, England between the Middle Ages and the modern era. She's, she's a historical fiction writer. So I grew up reading those books. I learned a lot about the uh, history of England, and I guess I was influenced also by 
soap opera. So all my I love tragedy, I love drama, I love all that. And then when I when I discovered Balzac, yeah, it was a revelation because he's a realistic, but also all of his characters are so tragic. And he doesn't divide the world into good and bad people. His characters are very real, very... uh, It's not that they're all villains, but they all can be greedy and selfish and and passionate and and make terrible mistakes. And you fall in love because they feel so real. And he did a very, very good job on, on portraying the society of that time, but also humanity. His novels are a perfect documentary of the France of that time, but also a perfect psychological study of humanity as a whole, because no matter if you are Mexican or Nigerian or Chinese, you can identify with these people because they're real. Yeah, right. And it seems like, I don't know if if this is fair, but it seems like when we think about books that are set in the past or writers who are set in the past, we tend to think they don't have a modern sensibility in terms of the breadth of characters. They have good guys and bad guys. They have virtuous young women and they have the fallen women. And it is wonderful to read in Balzac that, you know, where he's willing to put that whole mix of humanity on the page without worrying that uh, his novels will not be appropriate for young people to read or they won't be giving the correct life lessons and so on. Yeah, in a way, he invented realism because he broke up with that tradition of having virtuous damsels in distress and heroic main characters and stuff. He broke with that tradition, and and I think that's why I love him so much. I would say that part of that is not so modern is he just loved long descriptions that could be they could get a little bit dull, (laughs) a little bit difficult. So he's not an easy writer, not because he's his stories are very engaging and very gripping. However, he loves to describe his characters in big detail. Mm. And that's where he can lose you if you don't have the patience. Yeah. They must have been trained for that. I mean, even if they were, readers must have been trained for it. They were reading serially a lot of his works. They must have had the patience for it or felt like, well, this is... This is giving us information that we're not getting elsewhere or, you know, they didn't have television. They didn't have all of that. So I guess maybe they just uh, (laughs) maybe they were fine with it. He was a very popular writer in his day. Yeah. And it's what you said. You didn't have the competition of TV or radio or Instagram or any of that. So you either read a novel or told a story or I mean, you didn't have many other options. And uh, his uh, biggest audience were women. And especially educated, wealthy, upper middle class and rich women. And they had a lot of free time because back then they couldn't have a a career. They were either wives or I don't know what else. So they had plenty of time to read and they had plenty of time to to devote to his novels. Right now, we have a lot of competition. So as a writer, you cannot be as detailed as, as he is. Yeah. One of the things, this is a bit of a tangent, but one of the things I always have to remind myself is that their relationship with music was so different from ours, that it would be, 
you know, if you wanted to hear music, you would either go to a concert or go to church, or you would have to play it yourself, or you would have to know someone who would play it for you. There was no recorded music or no radio or anything like that, and it often comes out in books uh, written at that time that the the characters will fall in love with somebody for the way that they play, or the character will refuse to play, or they beg someone to play, and it's you do get the sense that people were walking around almost like today we might say, oh, this guy knows how to juggle. I bet he'll be good at my child's birthday party or something. It would be like, oh, she's really good at the keyboard or she sings very well. And it would just be the skill that people would have that would maybe be uh, different from how we might look at people today. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that broke my heart when I, I read it, and I mean, it's pretty obvious, but back then people would hear to their favorite piece of music maybe once or twice in their lives. Uh, it's not like now where you can find whatever music you want, but uh, it sounds so sad that you couldn't enjoy music whenever you want it. Yeah. And you maybe would hear it and not be able to track it down and have no idea what it was. You maybe overhear it somewhere and and then just try to describe it to people or sing it for them and, and try to recreate it. It almost makes it seem like something today. I don't know what the equivalent would be if you dreamt it or something uh, that you would not be able to have access to it. Yeah, it would be like falling in love with somebody that you saw on the streets and no way to find that person again. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so let's turn to Cousin Pons in particular. Uh, I've got a description from you that made me laugh. It was, uh, you said the book was about two gay guys and horrible people getting away with crime. Uh, is that a good summary? <laughs> uh, well, maybe crime was uh, not the right word. Maybe getting away with uh, immorality. Um, uh, but the gay guys are the good guys. Yeah, but they're horrible people. Right? No, 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 no. The, the gay guys are the good ones, and uh, the horrible people are the people around them. I see. Okay. <laughs> so when I read Cousin Ponce, I must have been in my early 20s, but back then, internet wasn't that popular yet, and uh, I just didn't get it that they were gay. I was... I was a little bit confused, and I, I, I thought at one moment, maybe these characters are gay, but he's not saying it. Mm. And, uh, but now I reread it, and I'm like, oh my God, this is super obvious. He gives all these straight, direct hints that they, uh, they were all they had for each other, uh, to give a, a little bit of a background. Cousin Pons, his name is Sylvian, I think, um, he's always referred just as Pons. He's an old musician. He remains single. He never married any woman. And he lives with a friend of his called uh, Schmucke, who's a German. He's also a musician. And they're super friends. And uh, they love each other like lovers. Uh, that's what uh, Balzac says, something they like. And yes, uh, it is obvious that they're gay, but he cannot say it directly. Mm. And uh, the novel is about Pond's obsession at the beginning. Uh, uh, what makes this book so special is that Although Pons is a central character, he's not the only character you follow. You follow him at the beginning of the book, and then you follow La Cibot, who's uh, their housekeeper, and then all the uh, greedy, horrible people around them. So you spin on, I guess, goals. And the story begins with Pons being a fan of delicious food. He visits all his uh, distant relatives and friends just to have dinner with them because he's poor, but he wants to enjoy good, lavish food. But nobody likes him because he's old, he's boring, and he's not that pleasant to have around because, I mean, he's not interesting. 
but uh, he invites himself in all these rich houses, and everybody is sick of him. And uh, some uh, distant relatives of his shows up. Uh, one of them, uh, the uh, there's a uh, camusot, the the lady of the house, and her daughter cannot stand them. And the daughter pretends that they had received an invitation to go have dinner somewhere else, but they didn't. They just wanted to be out of the house. So they they leave, and then Pons decides to leave as well, but he realizes that, that it was all pretense, and he is very offended by it, and he falls sick of, uh, I mean, he's deeply humiliated, and Balzac describes that as gastric nostalgia. Mm-hmm. So he's offended by his relatives, but what hurts him the most is that he's not going to have all those lavish foods anymore. And because he decides, he decides to stop visiting those people, he realizes at last, after all these years, that he's unwanted and unwelcome. Mm. So he falls sick. And we also learn that he's a collector. And he collects all these paintings and bric-a-bracs and little pieces of figurines. And, and he loves going to all markets and collect, buying collector's pieces. And he has a fortune in art in his house. But he doesn't even know how much is worth. And then his relatives find out that he has a fortune. And uh, not to ruin the plot for everyone, but the story is about how he makes a faux pas again. And this time he, he falls really sick. And he eventually is about to die. And everybody around him is ready to inherit his fortune, mm-hmm. which he doesn't have money. What he has is art. And it's all these greedy people trying all these schemes and plotting and just making sure that the Schmoke, his friend and most probably lover, doesn't inherit the art because they want the money for themselves. Mm, <laughs> and, uh, right. And the character, the character that you love the most is uh, the, the porter of the house who also works as her housekeeper and she becomes the nurse of Cousin Pons, La Cibo, who's a very charming but very greedy woman who wants a share of the money as well. She creates all these schemes and visits a lawyer and uh, just trying to have a share of the money. She's really, really funny, really dramatic. The whole novel is a tragic comedy. Uh, It's very campy. If you allow yourself to read it as a campy story, it is. And uh, it is funny. It's ridiculous. But it's also very tragic, uh, sad. And elegant. I mean, uh, Balzac's language is impeccable. I, I mean, you just love the way he writes. Mm. Are you rooting for her or for his friend and probable lover? I guess you're rooting for everyone because you're rooting for a Schmulke who's you feel very sorry for him, but he's a pushover. Uh, I mean, you like him even if he's a pushover, but also you like Lassibo because you can feel you can feel her pain. She has been poor all of her life. And when she finally sees money and she sees an opportunity to get rich and you see her desperation and you see how hard she's trying to get away with the money, you root for her. The one true villain is uh, La Presidente Camusot, uh, cousin Pont's distant cousin. She's a horrible woman, very greedy, and she's rich, but she wants more money. And she blames uh, Pont's of all her misfortune. She's a true villain. There are all other people that are also uh, true villains, but but Lassie Bo is a, is a wonderful character. She reminds me, if uh, if your listeners need a visual image 
of uh, uh, what is her name, Brenda, the actress uh, who plays the mother in Pride and Prejudice, the uh, version with uh, oh, what is the name of this actress, uh, Matthew McFadden, uh, McFadden and uh, Kira Knightley. Right, right. And uh, so, uh, in my mind, Lassie Bo is that actress, Brenda. I forgot her last name. Uh, but if you remember that film, Pride and Prejudice, she's just like that. <laughs> mm, right. Uh, Brenda Blethen? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting because what occurred to me when you were describing this and the way that you're, when I asked the question of who are you rooting for, it almost sounds like when you hear actors talk and they're being asked to play someone who is kind of a villain or kind of a, an undesirable character, and they will say, well, I had to find the good in that character. I had to figure out what that person was trying to do so that I could play him or her with some sympathy and kind of be inside the mind of that person. And it almost seems like Balzac is a strong enough writer to say, I've got to invest all of these characters with their own agenda and morality and their own justifications that they would have for what they're doing. And I can't just pick a side and make this person the virtuous one who the reader is supposed to, you know, signal to the reader, well, we all want to root for this person to get the money, but I want to give everyone their own their own turn and be fair yeah. and, and that will make the fiction better. Yeah. And uh, but let me say this. I think a mistake we writers make is that we root for the good guys. Mm. And we don't necessarily root for the good guys. And we don't judge who to root for in, based on a, on a judgment of morality. So it's not about finding the good in villain characters. It's about understanding and empathizing with them and sympathizing, feeling compassion for their distress. So finding the good in La Cibot, understanding her despair and understanding how much she craves that money and how much pain causes her not to have it. And that's when you empathize with her. So it's not about when people uh, talk about redeeming uh, characters. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need to find the good of them. What you need to find is their true motivation and make the reader feel that motivation, understand that motivation and feel their pain. So we, we sympathize with other people's pain, even if they are bad people. I mean, making an analogy, the, the, the one that I always use is the movie Monster, the one with Charlie mm -hmm. Strong or Joker. They're horrible people. They kill a lot of people, but you truly understand their pain and their need. And um, there's no goodness to be found in these characters. Well, I mean, if you look for it, maybe you will find something. But what you actually find is their pain, their yeah. distress, their craving for love and acceptance that they don't get. And that's what we can sympathize with. Right. And that's that's such an important distinction, because if you have someone who is sort of a someone that we do not root for and then you have them, you know, show them giving money to charity or something, it's not going to work. It's not going to make us say, oh, well, see, he has a good side, too. We would just think, well, that doesn't outweigh all the things we're seeing. But if you can uh, give something about them that resonates with people who are reading it and so they can kind of imagine themselves in those shoes and knowing that we all could be in that kind of a world if we were pushed to that kind of, uh, if we face similar circumstances. And yeah, and the formula, the formula is ex extremely simple, is simply distress, pain. If we cannot see the characters in pain, 
we cannot sympathize with them. We cannot feel compassion for them, and then we cannot root for them. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more questions for Carlos Allende. Okay, we're back. Before we leave Balzac, I wanted to ask you something that you had mentioned about not knowing at first whether the characters were gay and then seeing later that the signal was clear. Did you get the sense that Balzac couldn't uh, be more direct because it would affect the way people would interpret the characters? Or did he feel like he wasn't free to be as explicit as he otherwise would have been if he had been writing, let's say, in, in 2020? Yeah, I guess he wasn't free to say that. It was at times. He has another novel, which I haven't read, called Seraphite or Seraphine, uh, about a guy that becomes uh, a woman. I should read it. But yeah, I guess it was at times he couldn't say that these characters were gay because that would be highly immoral. I mean, there's a lot of sex in these novels that he doesn't uh, explain uh, overly. So it's always very covert because um, there was a lot of censorship back then. I was just going to say, but he seems like he felt free to leave hints so that he wasn't worried that his readers were going to be outraged, but he was worried that, well, this is kind of the game we have to play, kind of like they used to have to do when, you know, couples would have to turn out the lights and then we wouldn't see what would happen in the bedroom or something, but we all know what's happening during the honeymoon and and so forth. That he's kind of, he's signaling it to the reader. He trusts the readers, but he thinks, I know what's acceptable for what gets published. Exactly. Yeah. He wasn't free to to say whatever he wanted, and uh, but uh, because it was not direct, some people wouldn't get it. I didn't get it the first time I read it, and I'm gay, so yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess it comes with age, um, and and that's what happens. The younger you are, the more literal you take things from media. The mm. older you are, the more capable you are to understand the gist, to read between the lines. So I guess this is uh, Balzac is perhaps for an older public. And uh, I mean, not necessarily, but but you will understand all the double and tender uh, if if you are a little bit older and and you don't uh, try to interpret it too literally. Yeah, I've read lots of books that are set in the past, or I mean, that were written in the past, and sometimes the not too distant past, where the sexual orientation is used as to indicate their villainousness or their uh, being outcast from society or almost like a character flaw. And sometimes Uh like in a murder mystery, it'll be, oh, that's the explanation for all of it. It turns out that he's uh, the person who committed the murder is gay and see, that's why and Uh all of that. Is that, uh, that sounds like not what Balzac is doing here, that he's treating these two men as, a couple that he might have known or, or maybe a relationship that was similar to one he himself had. Yes. In, in our case, these are good guys. And all that he does is to praise their friendship and how they care for each other as if, as if one was... Uh, I mean, there's a part, I'm looking at it right now, where as he was uh, referring to uh, Schmoke, he says, she says, sorry, to, to uh, Pons, ah, he loves you. He does. The dear lamb of a man. No woman never loved a man like that. Mm. Uh, so Balzac is praising the love they have for each other and their relationship 
but he's at the same time he's telling us that they are boring and a boring old couple that weren't uh they weren't good looking they weren't interesting they were just uh i mean their world was each other and they were happy with that the the, the only problem was that pawns love to eat <laughs> does that actually does that work for him on the level of a plot? I'm thinking that if this had not been two men, if it had been, uh, if Ponce had been a man and the 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 friend had been a woman, uh-huh. wouldn't we be saying, well, if they're married, then she gets to inherit everything, story's over. Or, well, if they're not married, then clearly he wasn't intending to give it all to them. But if you make him, if you make the friend and probable lover gay, then it's like, well, actually, wouldn't it be... You know, that's a pretty good claim for that should be the person who gets this artworks and and who should inherit it. But we all know why it's not legal. Uh, But maybe there's some moral reasons for wanting to see this artwork go to that person. Yeah, it was perhaps a plot device, but also it's it's like a morality lesson about Two men that loved each other, they, had, they were all they have, and all these greedy people not letting them enjoy their money. Now, it must be said that all these people, either they were too blind to their relationship or they were just okay with it. Because mm. last he bought the, the housekeeper, the porter and, and their housekeeper, she takes care of them. And nobody hates them because of who they are living together. Actually, they are in a way appreciated by the people they work with at, at the theater. They're just an old eccentric couple. So their relationship is not a problem to anyone. Mm. The problem is that they want the money. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So let's move to the present. Uh, and I'm guessing um, when you're writing a book like Coffee, Shopping, Murder, Love, you probably feel like you can be free in a way that was not available to a Balzac. Is that fair? Yes. Yes, and but I also wanted to portray the lives of two men uh, that were born and raised in times where uh, they weren't free. So my generation and older, men and women and all types of uh, queer people who were born at a time before the internet and they never thought they were they would be able to be with the person they loved or even have a steady boyfriend or girlfriend or a couple. Uh, we were born in times where uh, we didn't know there were other queer people and we thought we were alone. I mean, you eventually discover that you're not, but uh, you grow up believing you're the villain, the pervert, the, the sick one, the all that. Now, newer generations don't have that. Mm. And uh, they have it much easier. Not too easy. Uh, I want to clarify that. It should be easy for everyone. Yeah. It should be normal. And it is to a point, not perfect yet. But it is becoming to a point of just okay. But then, because these people grew up in that time, they're traumatized and they bring up all their bitterness and anger. So my book is about anger, but it's not a. That's why I call it a book for the angry and the disenchanted. It's not to make you angrier. It's to repair your faulty mood. But if you're angry, you will like it the best. Mm. And because uh, it's a comedy, it makes you laugh. I want to leave people with uh, with a smile at the end and, and feel better about themselves and about the world, even if it's a book about horrible people. So that's what I wanted to represent. Uh, I was just talking about toxic positivity. I guess 
I mean, it's a little bit of a criticism and it will probably be an un- incomplete judgment because uh, that's not all the uh, literature I read. But I think there's a lot of toxic uh, positivity in gay media, especially uh, young adult stories. And I don't read much of them, so maybe my, my judgment is not fair. But you see all these stories where the gays are beautiful and handsome and smart and powerful. And you have all that information. Uh, you have all those can, all that kind of people on the Internet. And instead of making you feel better about yourself, it makes you feel worse because you're like, oh, my God, I'm not that handsome. I don't have those big muscles. I'm not uh, my skin is not perfect and stuff. And those people eventually don't feel real. But when you're young, you feel that you should be like those people. That, yeah. that's, we create that fallacy that that's what normal people look like. And when you see all this fake happiness, it just makes you feel depressed and angry and, and kind of bitter, but, but then you cannot tell it. And, and that's why we're so attracted to black humor. And that's why I wrote a, a, a dark comedy, campy dark comedy. I mean, we gays love uh, John Waters' humor and we love Divine, especially older generations, because they... Uh, Divine, even if it's she's a, a, a negative representation of uh, queerness, we just love her because she represents all our anger and bitterness. And still, uh, she makes us laugh. She's promiscuous. She's dirty. She's selfish. She's evil. And we just love her. And I think in big part because she represents that angry part of ourselves, that part that says, like, yeah, uh, I'm a villain. Well, let me show you who's bad. And <laughs> and uh, I wanted to portray part of that. I'm not saying that all of our characters should be villain. I'm saying that we should have a little bit of everything. Not only nice, beautiful, smart people that make us feel worse about ourselves when we're not that way. Yeah. It reminds me of a criticism I've heard of white writers and, and white screenwriters who fall into the trap of having the gray bearded black man as a source of yeah. wisdom. And they sort of say, well, look, you know, I've, I've put a, a black person in my movie and the critics will say, yeah, but if every if the only black person you ever put in the movie is a, a man with a gray beard who comes in to dispense this wisdom and, and move the plot along that way. And the actual round characters are always the white people who are struggling and who are funny and who who are, you know, partially who are rogues or whatever, then it's kind of like it's kind of limiting. It it doesn't give a full picture of humanity to make somebody just a positive uh, kind of a flat character. Yeah. Writers, uh, we we often make the mistake of basing our characters on archetypes from other stories and other novels. Mm. And I think that's a mistake. We should be observers and listeners of real life and base our characters on real people, people that we know, then our characters will be more real. I mean, I, I, you can still get uh, inspiration from characters, of course, and uh, from other stories. But in my case, when I was writing Coffee Shopping, Mother Love, I just based it on people that I know. <laughs> Not horrible people, but uh, people around me. And it was so much easier. And I think the characters come more alive because you don't have to describe them in big detail. I mean... We tend to say that uh, that stereotypes are bad, and many stereotypes are harmful and, and bad, but at the end, they're generalizations. They're generalizations mm-hmm. about the social group. So 
call them instead archetypes and base yourself on on types of people, not on social groups uh, necessarily, but use them and uh, just try to avoid spreading negative, harmful ones. Yeah. Like the one you mentioned, it, the term is the magical Negro, yeah, where yeah. black people will come and, and magically solve the problems, but he's still at the service of the white character. So I make a conscious effort to include diversity in my in my work, to include people from all uh, ethnic groups, because we live in LA, uh, well, I live in LA, sorry, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's a very diverse uh, city. And uh, I want to live in a world like L.A., where it doesn't matter where you're from, uh, you add beauty to this world. America is still very segregated. If you check, I mean, black people live in that neighborhood and Hispanics live on East L.A. and white people live on the uh, west side, close to the beach, etc. Uh, but there are parts which are very diverse and we have to show that in media. And you don't have to know a lot about other social groups. Do some research, some basic research, and make their race salient. That, that's what I always tell my students. If you want to add diversity to your world, include characters from other races and make their race salient. Don't leave the responsibility to the reader to assign them an ethnicity because we will all go to the white default because media has been dominated by uh, a white character. So just mention my, my character is Armenian, my character is from Thailand, etc. We don't need much. Mm. Uh, at the end, we're all the same. Yeah. We've been talking about your book a little bit in the abstract. Uh, I wanted to give listeners a, a bit more of a sense of what actually happens in it. So there's two men, uh, Jignesh Amin and Charlie Hayworth, who are they and what are they trying to accomplish? Accomplish, all right. So <laughs> Charlie is a short guy from Litchfield, Kentucky, a little town, mostly white town in Kentucky, who emigrated to California. And Jignesh uh, is an Indian American who uh, works as a bookkeeper. He's slightly older than Charlie. He's in his uh, early 40s. And uh, Charlie is, is in his mid to late 40, uh, 30s, sorry. And uh, they have a date, but it uh, fails. This All this happens before the, the novel starts. Hmm. And uh, they don't like each other. And Jignesh, quote, accidentally, unquote, kills the uh, office intern. So he's desperate to get rid of the body. Oh. And Charlie happens to be selling a uh, freezer on Facebook. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> So Jignesh contacts Charlie trying to buy the freezer and uh, he's planning to hide the body in, uh, inside until he figures out a way to, to get rid of it. So the whole, uh, whole book is about trying to get rid of the body. Mm. And uh, so they, their lives get intertwined. Uh, Jignesh and Charlie end up living together. And they're horrible people. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, you end up loving them, uh, hopefully. So far, their reception has been very good. Uh, people like Jignesh and they love Charlie too, but I wanted to make it very clear, these are horrible. Uh, Charlie is extremely superficial, selfish, greedy. What he wants is to find uh, a husband, a guy that would come and rescue him. While Jignesh is angry and bitter and he wants, in a way, revenge. Mm. Uh, some sort of uh, payback from his suffering. And both of them represent the extremes of uh, being bullied and growing up in a world that rejected you because you were gay. So they were, they're born uh, 
both the product of the 20th century. The, the novel uh, is set in 2012, one year before uh, gay marriage became legal. They both have no hopes of ever getting married. And Charlie is desperate to find a boyfriend, but uh, he talks too much, which makes him uh, incredibly unattractive. And Jignesh is overweight and bitter, so he has no hopes of finding a boyfriend either. And both of them keep self-sabotaging and making ridiculous mistakes and being very extremely selfish. But here's a trick. You root for them because you can feel their pain. Mm. You can feel Jignesh's desperation. He wasn't planning to kill a woman. It was just a fit of rage. <sighs> and, uh, and now he, he needs to fix that. And Charlie wants to be saved because all of his life, he has been uh, abused and insulted and hurt by others. And he has a very low self-esteem and he needs to be rescued by someone else. And I, I make a comment in the book that he was raised watching Disney princesses movies and all uh, he learned that the only way to move upward in the social hierarchy is by marrying someone rich <laughs> mm. by marrying a prince. So that's what he wants. He wants to marry a prince and it's a comedy of errors. And, uh, I don't know how much more to tell. It's funny. It's, uh, I still laugh when I read it. I wrote it myself <laughs> and I guess I gotta say that it's the first time when I have uh, edited a book many, many, many times, because I edited many times, where I still laugh with my own jokes. Sometimes I'm, I'm not reading the book. I'm just like thinking of something that I put in the book that Charlie said, and I'm just laughing. Yeah, it. you're laughing <laughs> because you can't believe that they went there. You can't believe they, yeah. they were willing to, just when you think they hit the bottom, they're willing to go even further below that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the dark humor of a show like Breaking Bad, which is kind of similar in the sense of there is something, and I know you teach a course called The Psychology of Compelling Storytelling, and you seem to have uh -huh. really put your finger on uh, this idea that if we can identify with people's pain, we will follow them, even if they might be horrible people. It reminds me of those shows where you know that the good people are not the ones who are the protagonists. You know that they're, you know, yeah. what everyone who watches Breaking Bad in real life would hope that they would get arrested right away in like episode two or something. And instead, you follow yeah. them through all of these seasons and it almost gets, uh, sometimes it makes you laugh out loud that they are so willing to, you know, talk themselves into committing yet another atrocity. Uh, because they're they're so uh, intent on getting what they want or in covering their tracks or trying to just sort of be the fullest self they can be, which might mean having to do things that we would ordinarily find repulsive. Yes. And I think that is also the magic with Balzac. He makes us feel for all these people. We understand their pain and desperation. And we can enjoy the story even if we know that what they're doing is wrong. Now, I didn't want uh, the reader to think that what they're doing is right. I wanted the reader to be conscious all the time, every single page, that what they're doing is wrong. And they still root for them. Mm. Uh, and they still want for good things to happen to them, but not condone what they're doing or imitate their behavior. So it's... Uh, I mean, I hope nobody will try to do what uh, Ignatius and Charlie <laughs> do. 
Right. So I, I strive to make it obvious that what they're doing is wrong, but I still have the reader enjoy it. I mean, one of the reasons why we, why we read is because we want to escape. We want to try, what would it be to live in somebody else's shoes? So mm-hmm. my novel is about uh, wearing the shoes of greedy, selfish, horrible people and still enjoy the trip. Mm. Well, I know you probably didn't intend this, but I would have to say, after talking to so many authors who will be so sick of their book by the time it's all finished and they've gone through all the revisions and everything, just talking to an author who can still find that things that are in the book kind of surprise him or make him laugh is, uh, to me, a book that I want to read. I was going to circle back to Balzac, but you kind of did it for me, so I think we should probably leave things there. Your novel is called Coffee Shopping Murder Love. Carlos Agende, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's been a pleasure. Okay. That's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. My thanks to Carlos Agende for joining me. Please do check out his novel, Coffee Shopping Murder Love, and maybe a little Balzac, too. I recommend Cousin Pons, Cousin Bet, Old Gorio, Lost Illusions, Eugenie Grandet, The Country Doctor, and The Unknown Masterpiece. These are books with people wrestling with material difficulties and social ambitions, Tangling with one another. There are something like 90 works, novels, and novellas in the human comedy. A whole ocean for you to swim in, if not drink. I <laughs> guess we don't drink oceans, do we? Unless you're some kind of weird giant with the ability to process salt water. The point, I suppose, is that there's probably more Balzac to go around for you. There's more than you can take in. But guess what? You can start at the shore... Wander in, get your toes wet, go for a swim, maybe a little deeper, maybe a little deeper, and then return to the beach when you've had your fill, when your limbs are tired. And that ocean will always be there, vast and choppy, vast and calm, sometimes choppy, sometimes calm, but always, always vast and beautiful. And even one might say changing as our moods and our needs And our eras rise and fall like the sun, casting new lights and shadows on whatever ocean you like to call your favorite. Maybe the Atlantic, maybe the Pacific, or maybe just that ocean that lives inside your mind and your chest. The secret ocean that's as beautiful as anything on this planet, if you allow it to be. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.